Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Our identity is who we are. But for such a seemingly simple concept, our identities are extremely complex. We aren't the only ones who decide our identities. Society places labels on us that we often don't feel represents who we are, or worse, forces us into very narrow roles from which we feel we are unable to escape. The science fiction genre loves to explore themes of identity, from what it means to be human and beyond. More and more, we are seeing an emphasis placed on the identity we choose for ourselves, whether that's a name, a job, a moral code, a label, a community, and so much more. We are very lucky to have Charlie Jane Anders with us today to discuss identity as represented in science fiction, something she considers from multiple angles in her new YA novel, Victories Greater Than Death. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I'm Charlie Jane Anders, and I am indeed the author of Victories Greater Than Death, a brand new young adult space opera about a teenage girl who is the clone of an alien hero that was left on Earth as a baby, like disguised as a human, and now it's time for her to return to the stars and claim her destiny. I also wrote All the Birds in the Sky and The City in the Middle of the Night, and I co-host the podcast Our Opinions Are Correct with Annalie Newitz. Amazing. If you haven't read Charlie Jane's stuff, then you absolutely need to get on that because it's, well, for me, I like weird and wonderful and um, (laughs) I find your books really different from a lot of the stuff that's out there. And that to me is what makes it really special. So from HG Wells to Ursula K. Le Guin, the search for and understanding of identity is a subject that writers of science fiction have long been exploring. But why is sci-fi so good at providing an arena in which to tackle this fundamental human question? Like, I think that science fiction, part of what science fiction does is it sort of takes you out of your context and kind of puts you into an unfamiliar context. It, in fact, can defamiliarize aspects of human life that we sort of take for granted by kind of showing them turned sideways or turn on their heads or kind of, you know, with a few bits changed. Um, And, you know, it's also really good for thought experiments. It's good for thought experiments like Ursula, you mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin, her thought experiment of like, what if there was a world where all of the people, you know, had no gender identity, except that, uh, you know, once a month, they become either male or female, and it's in response to sort of, you know, their, their hormones and their interactions with other people. And, you know, that kind of thought experiment um, or, you know, a thought experiment to say about a new technology, it just allows you to kind of play around with identity in a way that's really hard to do otherwise. I love that idea of a thought experiment. And I think that's generally why I love science fiction just at all, because <laughs> so much yeah. of it is just, it's like, what if, and then let yourself go. It's that high concept that really is really interesting. Yeah, I, I love a high concept story if it's if it's done well and if it sort of has an emotional, personal aspect to it, you know. I mean, what about when you have things like alien life? Because 
obviously, you know, the the thing that you get there is, well, you have human identity versus this completely different alien life. What what do you think is is really interesting about kind of taking us away from our little narrow blinkered view of just this is my identity as a human being and looking at it as opposed to well what if we are just one kind of creature in a vast universe of creatures yeah i mean i think that that's a very valuable tool obviously and you know it's it's sort of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, yeah, you can absolutely use aliens as a sort of, you know, a mirror to hold up to humanity and show like, okay, well, these folks like have a different biology, a different culture, you know, they do things differently. Maybe they have some aspects of humanity, but it's in a very different context. So we can kind of see, oh, you know, if you change this, this, and this, you end up with something really different. Um, on the other hand, I think that uh, the, the danger when you're using aliens, this is something I thought a lot about because there's a bunch of aliens in, in Victories Greater Than Death. The danger with aliens is that you sort of, you know, you other them in a way that kind of mirrors the way we other, you know, other human beings on this planet. And, you know, in particular, you can find yourself kind of projecting onto them aspects of humanity or aspects of certain human groups, like certain ethnic groups or certain other identities, you, you, or, you know, LGBTQ people, you can project that onto the aliens. And then it becomes like, oh, you know, you're kind of saying that gay people are aliens or that like a certain members of a certain ethnic group are aliens or trans people or whatever. And you see Star Trek doing that sometimes. Star Trek sometimes falls into that where they they sort of inadvertently kind of project these human identities onto aliens and then kind of in the process other uh, members of the human species like who, be who belong to those identities. But I think that if you approach the aliens sort of thoughtfully, like like the way Le Guin does with her people in in The Left Hand of Darkness. And they are clearly people, but they're people who are a little bit different in some way. And you kind of give them enough interiority, enough complexity of their own. I think you can sidestep a lot of that. It's interesting that you mention the, you know, Star Trek falling into that trap because one thing that I loved about like original series Star Trek was that they use the aliens as a way to comment on the society, I guess in a good way, like to point out how ridiculous racism was by having aliens that were the same, but just had black on one side of the face and white on the other, but in, you know, in reverse and therefore they hated each other. And, you know, that was kind of the, the comment saying, well, you're being ridiculous. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really nice way of using it. It's just a different way of exploring the, the quite serious social issues of the time, but using aliens as a way to kind of take you outside of yourself and outside of the, the very narrow existence that you have experienced that within, which kind of you always feel sort of limited in how you can see something until you're taken out of it. And I just, I think that's a really nice way of using it. Yeah. And I, I think that that can be really valuable. I actually wrote an essay about this a while ago that you can find at Tor.com. It's part of my series on, on writing called Never Say You Can't Survive, which is actually going to be a book in August. And um, basically, I think that, you know, the, the again, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Those kinds of allegories, because really what you're talking about now is allegory and using, you know, and this happens in fantasy and in science fiction and, you know where you have elves who are 
you know, either enslaved or abused, or maybe the elves are enslaving or abusing others, or, you know, the orcs are, are the invading barbarians or something, you know, you have like these allegories that, that science fiction and fantasy lean on, which sometimes that the problem is, I think it's, it, there's a lot that you can say about that, but I think the problem is that often these allegories become oversimplified and a little bit kind of, you know, I think that part of the reason why we don't see those kinds of allegories quite as much anymore is because I think people realized that they have limitations, that they can only express like really basic stuff like racism is bad and they can't kind of like really delve into the causes and the the nature of systemic racism. They can only kind of like point a finger at racism and say, this is bad. And like, you know, I think we've all learned, especially in recent years, that racism is actually, it is systemic it is uh ingrained it is kind of structural it is part of our society and it's part of our economy and it's you know we all kind of take for granted a lot of the things that ways in which our society is shaped by by racism and by you know bigotry um and i think that the problem with those kinds of allegories is that they're often a little bit simplistic and you know people can mistake the map for the territory i think that sometimes you kind of think that oh well this this allegory doesn't just kind of give a, 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 a kind of skewed representation of a real-life problem in order to dramatize it. This allegory perfectly represents the problem, and in that case, it's just like, well, all we have to do is, is you know, get the people with the, the black on one side and the white on the other to talk to the people with the white on one side and the black on the other, and everything will be fine. And, you know, and obviously that, that particular Star Trek episode actually ends on kind of a downer note. It's a very pessimistic ending, in a way. Like, they actually do destroy themselves in the end. Um, which I think that's one thing I do love about the original Star Trek is that sometimes when it would go for these allegories, they would sidestep the kind of happy resolution and just go straight for the total bummer ending, which I think is actually, you know, a saving grace. It's interesting because I got Star Trek and Pratchett as my two examples of, of allegories for this. And I think what you're saying about Star Trek and how simplistic it is. I think you're right, because you've only what, got half an hour, 45 minutes in which to try and put forward a brand new culture and all the tensions and the conflicts that you get in that. And whilst I love Star Trek, and I think it's got lots of good points, I think there's also just, like you say, it's so endemic that you don't often notice it's there until you step back and have a look. And the other one I was thinking about was Pratchett and how you were saying that we don't do that stuff so much anymore. And if you look at Pratchett's older work I was thinking of uh, interesting times and what's the other Rincewind one so he's got the counterweight continent which is um uh and then triple x as well and they take the mick out of the cultures and it's it feels all in good fun but you do wonder how much of it is you know offensive if you're not reading it if you're reading it and you're not from that culture but when you get to the later Pratchett books, he manages to deal with racism by then transferring it to dwarf versus troll versus golem. <laughs> and, and I think those oh, work much better because, yeah, they, they rely so much on examining things. And the trolls and the dwarves have their own characteristics. And I know that Tolkien put quite a bit of racism in his and you can point to his description of orcs and go, oh, that's very, very racist. Yeah. But I don't feel you get that in Pratchett so much. I feel that Pratchett managed to take it a step further and really create characters that don't have too much of a reflection in modern society and can explore it a bit better. But I mean, what do you think? 
you know, I mean, I, I confess I still have some gaps in my t- in my Pratchett knowledge. I, I am too, very ashamed of that. Uh, I, I have I've read maybe half a dozen Pratchett books, but I really want to one of these days sit down and just read like you know just do a, a Pratchett deep dive because I love his writing so much and I'm, I'm a huge fan. And I think that part of what makes it work for in the Pratchett books that I've read when he does kind of touch on real life human foibles or real life, you know, issues is the sort of twinkle in his eye and the kind of, you know, the, the, the warmth that he has towards his characters and the kind of, you know, he's, he's your sort of classic, um, chatty narrator who kind of gives you, uh, kind of gives you like a nice, uh, way into the story. I, I think that part of the problem is when you simplify groups down to one characteristic and you have like, okay, the orcs, they're all warlike, they're all violent, they're all, you know, just terrible. And like, that's their only character trait. And, you know, my, my favorite example of this at all time, I actually just wrote an article about this where I use this example. So people might've already seen it by the time this comes out. My favorite all time example is there's an episode of Doctor Who from 1974 called The Monster of Peladon, actually episode one. And we meet a creature named Vegan Nexos, I think his name is, and Vegan Nexos, I guess. And um, he introduces himself and then says, I come from a planet of peaceful, practical mining engineers. And like he basically says, his entire species, everybody on his planet is a mining engineer. That's the only job you could have on his planet. And, you know, it's fine in the story because he's a mining engineer. So it's like, okay, good. You come from the planet of the mining engineers. This is just what we needed. But it's a little weird to think of like an entire planet where like the career fair is just like, well, you could be a mining engineer or you could be a mining engineer. You know, I don't know. It's funny. Yeah. That just made me think of Futurama as well, where it's like, me too. You just get your chip and told exactly what you are. And what is he? Uh, you know, in 2000, he's a delivery boy. And then when Fry gets to the year 3000, he's a delivery boy. <laughs> right, right. So I want to talk a little bit about um, the science part of science fiction, um, because I think this touches on um, something you explore quite profoundly in your new book, um, which is this idea of cloning. Clearly, there's. I feel like there's a lot to unpack in this. Um, how much, you know, as as someone who's written a book where the main character is a clone and has woven this idea with, um, you know, the chosen one, um, destiny, these quite um, they're kind of fantasy tropes in a way, kind of archetypal. I mean, how did you go about the question of cloning in relation to individual identity? How much? individuality can a clone win? Wow, that's such a fascinating question. I mean, in the context of my book, you know, it is, it is. I mean, my book is absolutely 100% a fantasy novel. I call it a space fantasy. I think, you know, um, much like All the Birds in the Sky, I'm kind of playing around with both fantasy and science fiction in uh, Victories Greater Than Death. I think that, you know, um, obviously there have been some stories about cloning that have really dealt with identity in a really profound way, like orphan black. And, you know, there's a few others that come to mind. Um, but I think that, you know, I was sort of approaching it from the other end of like, okay, I want my main character to be secretly an alien who was left on earth and who is going to go back to space when the time is right, when she's old enough and sort of, you know, the idea that, she there's some reason she was left on earth and I sort of struggled with what that could be for a while. And I was like, okay, well what if she is the, the, 
the heir to this like legacy? What if she was this kind of like um, epic hero in this past life and everybody's just waiting for her to come back? And, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of ways I could have done that. I could have had it be like that, you know, she's been reincarnated somehow through some magic mystical process or that, you know, she's... Um, she's somehow been duplicated through some, you know, more kind of arcane means. But the idea of her being a clone made sense to me. And I, I like the thing I like about clones is that, you know, unlike I'm just going to keep bringing it back to Doctor Who because I'm honestly obsessed with Doctor Who. Unlike in the Doctor Who episode, The Invisible Enemy, where the Doctor and Leela are cloned and the clones are fully adult at the moment of cloning and wearing clothes. Like the cloning device not only copies their dna but it actually gives them the clothes that they were wearing when they got cloned which is you know it's pretty amazing technology so i think most people would understand that when you clone someone you end up with a baby and the baby has to grow up and so i thought that that was actually a really good thing to have and you know obviously part of what i'm dealing with in victory is greater than death is that i think nurture matters and i'm you know when it comes down to nature versus nurture like i think most people nowadays, I come down on the side of both. It's both nature and nurture. I think that both things matter for sure. But I think that nurture is, I think, a bit more important than we give it credit for because, you know, you've we, we've seen it over and over again. People are a product of their upbringing, their circumstances. And, you know, for example, people who have uh, access to more education and more resources, more, you know, childcare and just all the resources that, you know, certain people in society take for granted, there are all sorts of good outcomes that happen when you have access to all that stuff and it does make a difference. And so I think, you know, I think that there's a political dimension to the sort of nature versus nurture debate as to, you know, whether it's worth trying to give everybody the same chance in life in a way, I guess. Um, and so I'm very much on the side of nurture to the extent that I'm taking sides. Like I said, I'm kind of both. And so, in this book, it absolutely matters that Tina was raised on Earth by a human mother and like grew up, you know, going to school and riding, you know, her bike and skateboarding and playing video games and hanging out with her friends. And, you know, she was shaped by Earth. And that's a thing that was really important to me. I don't, you know, she doesn't get into space and suddenly just like, oh, now she's just totally an alien. She's always going to be a girl from Earth. And this is something that she really struggles with in the book because you know, for a lot of the book, she really thinks that what she wants more than anything is to be, you know, and just this alien hero that she was in her previous life. And she doesn't really see any value in being the person she was on Earth. When you're talking about that, it really brought to mind The Snow Queen by Joan de Ving. Or oh, I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know. I, I say Vingy, um, but I mean. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't I know. Think it's Vingy. <laughs> I think it's Vingy. I don't know. Um, but yeah, because she is that's the the reigning queen basically goes and inseminates a bunch of un, unwitting women um with uh the her clones basically, so that Whoa. she can feels like she can continue uh ruling for forever basically so you know as, as she gets closer to death she clones herself and actually similarly in in arcady martin's um books as well because the the emperor had himself cloned because he had no heir and he named his clone the heir um 
Yeah, it's quite an interesting thing. And again, I think this is, you know, something you see coming up a lot in sci-fi because even, you know, looking at um, Jupiter Ascending, she mm-hmm. is basically the reincarnation of the the queen. And right. it's, it's really interesting. That. Yeah, I, I, I did actually I did actually read A Memory Called Empire, Arkady Martin's first book, while I was like revising Victories Greater Than Death. And I remember being like, oh, darn, I think I... I think we did this kind of the same thing. Although Arkady Martin's take on it is very different from mine. And she has does all sorts of interesting things with identity and with, you know, people kind of speaking from beyond the dead and so on. Amazing. I, I loved uh, both, both novels. Um, but yeah, I find it, it, a lot of these stories, you know, it, it does come down to, but I am a different person. I might have the same DNA as you, but I am different. And I think, even even from a very realistic standpoint, you know, my my dad is an identical twin. So technically, if you looked at my uncle and my dad's DNA, they're the same. Mm-hmm. So, but but they're very different people, like very different people. <laughs> and right, and you know, so I I find that really interesting. You know, that's just another way of looking at it. it might be a more mundane way of looking at it, but. Uh, yeah, I, I do find it really interesting, this looking at cloning, because I absolutely don't think that nature determines everything, because otherwise my dad and his twin brother would be basically the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's lived experience that is one of the ways you could win freedom from your the set of DNA that you were basically given as a clone. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And I think, you know... Um... I think that we all love stories about people who were sort of, you know, chosen for a thing or, you know, they're, they're told that this thing is in your blood or whatever. And, but they, they choose their own path because that is what we all want to do. Right. A hundred percent. Yes. <laughs> Charlie Jane, you said earlier that you were quite a big fan of Doctor Who. And I was thinking of the Matt Smith's episodes called the rebel flesh and the almost people where they do have clones who are provided as sort of spare workers so that if they accidentally fall in the acid, the real people aren't hurt. You then obviously get Doctor Who coming along when there's a big electrical storm, blah, 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 and then the clones become real. And we're back to this idea of not being able to study it very well because you've only got two 45-minute episodes. Um, But I thought it was quite interesting. The examples you and Megan were talking about were very much about impregnation and birth and kind of going along as a clone and growing up differently. But the Doctor Who one was very much definitely, you click your fingers um, and a clone arises from a machine mm-hmm. and it has all of your memories. Do you think there's right. a difference then when a clone has been grown in a womb and raised separately alongside whatever, or when one just automatically appears from a machine of goop? I definitely think there's a difference. And it's sort of like, you know, to bring in Star Trek, there's there's been a few episodes of Star Trek where you get like transporter duplicates where somebody, you know, they they revealed at a certain point that when you when you, you use their little teleportation machine, the transporter, to beam down to a planet, they're actually making a copy of you and destroying the original, which is really disturbing. The more you think about it, you're like, why? Like, that's so terrible. And like, yeah. you know, like you step into those things and it's like, well, I'm actually this is the end of my life, but I'll never know because a duplicate of me is going to appear on the planet. And like, that's, there's so many weird philosophical questions and you always wonder why don't they just create a duplicate on the planet, but keep the original on the ship so that, you know, when inevitably people get killed on those missions, which they always do, 
well, the original is still safe on the ship. I don't know. Anyway, so, um, but it, it is this thing where you duplicate someone and then there's a, a duplicate and occasionally it goes wrong and there's two versions of you running around and you have the same memories, but you start to diverge instantly from the moment that you are duplicated and, you know, you immediately start to have different experiences that cause you to become different people like very quickly, which I think is actually a really fun thing. And, you know, obviously in those sorts of stories, like the one you, the Doctor Who one you mentioned, especially there is a thing of like, well, who's the original and who's the the real you versus who's the kind of fake you. And like, it kind of privileges the, the original over the duplicate, um, which I think is, you know, if it's a perfect duplicate, then there shouldn't be any reason to see one as more legitimate than the other, which I think is, is a really, but you know, obviously in the Doctor Who story, they turn into goop after a while. So that's kind of a, a, a bit of a problem that they have. It's really interesting what you say about the privilege of the original, and I've got my air quotes up here, the original person in Doctor Who, because I watched it with my daughter and she got really upset when one of the characters who was an original died. And it's the one who's got a family to go back to. And then obviously his clone goes and takes up his place. And I didn't really know how to kind of discuss this with her because on the one hand, yes, he died. On the other hand, there was also a clone. And it, it brings up some really knotty issues in such a, a straightforward idea. It really does. And I'd for, actually forgotten about that until you just said that. I, th- I think it, it really does bring up some some kind of, kind of tangly, weird philosophical issues about like, you know, what makes you you, I guess, in a way. And like, you know are you just, you know, are we the sum of our memories? Are we the sum of, you know, are we, is there some thing about the physical object that's important? Actually, you know what, uh, the, the, the final episode of WandaVision sort of deals with this a lot because you have two different versions of the vision. One of whom I think is, I think, well, it's complicated. I don't want to give too many spoilers, but they end up having this like really long philosophical debate about which one is the real vision. And they get into this whole thing about like this, the the kind of thought experiment of the Greek boat or whatever it is, where you keep replacing pieces of the boat until no original piece is left. And it's like, is it still the same boat? And, you know, these are the sort of things that, you know, are questions that really can never have like a definitive answer. But it's that is the thing that science fiction can do is force us to think about that stuff. I was um, thinking about the Prestige, which I don't know if anyone's seen, and it's oh, yes. quite. An- yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, this will have spoilers, but it's at least ten years. Oh God, I hate to think how old it is now because <laughs> it'll make me feel old. But <laughs> that plays around with a really interesting way of, um, you know, with the clones and the original versus the the clone, which I really really liked at the time. You know, with the idea of. He for his magic act, he gets cloned, so right. that it and that's how the magic trick works. But then at the end, one of them has to die, and he deliberately sets it up so he never knows which one. So you have no idea. You know, the likelihood is he's not the original, but he never knows when, if it's the the brand new clone or the one that started the magic act or so on. You know, that's that's going to be still alive at the end, which is really fascinating. There is some dubious moral questions there, isn't there? <laughs> but you've also got the kind of the idea of, again, without trying to give out too many spoilers, although I suppose it is a 10-year-old film now, uh, you've got Christian Bale's character and the cloning issue there. And, you know, it's it's an idea of a clone, isn't it? And how they do 
kind of work it and how far are you willing to go because they swap wives and all sorts of things it's just it's just so many bizarre and freaky questions and you kind of get to the end of it and go you know what I don't think either of them were right really I think Michael Caine was the one who was the most sensible out of all of them so I don't know why um I thought when I was, I was putting these questions together I'm not sure why found families kind of jumped out at me when I was thinking about identity but maybe I think it's the element of choice I don't know yeah it's because well when we were chatting about it it was the this idea that choosing your identity part of that is like choosing who your family is rather than who you're just born to or 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 saying like you know okay I was born in Australia that makes me an Australian and I can't be anything else ever again or you know um yeah it's, it was about the element of choice around that and how there's a lot of found families in sci-fi, I think. was the- There's also an element that in cloning, you tend to mess up your own family, don't you? I mean, we were talking about um, Doctor Who and trying to go back to families when you might be a clone. We're talking about uh, the prestige and all the issue of trying to have a family and be a clone. I mean, there's, I think there's a lot in there. And whether you still fit into your original family, if you're a clone, are you still acceptable? I mean, are you forced to go and find your own family? Yeah, I feel like I've read or seen some science fiction stories where there is a sort of, you know, a duplicate of somebody or there's an extra version who ends up having to live with the family. I'm trying to remember. It's it's in the back of my mind, like a story about like where basically we have to take in an extra person and it's sort of another version of one of the family members. But I can't remember. I think that, you know, what you said was really spot on about how chosen families kind of offer us a way to reinvent ourselves. And that is, I think for LGBTQ plus folks, that is actually an important part of chosen families, because oftentimes our um, our birth families, our, our biological, I guess, families don't fully accept us or don't fully embrace our identities as we, you know, come out and as we kind of reveal ourselves to the world. Um, and, you know, oftentimes our kind of birth families, you know, try to push us back into the box that they kind of saw us in when we were little. And it's, it's you know, depending on how lucky you are, you could find yourself really struggling with with the identity that your birth family is trying to impose on you. So the chosen family offers, you know, a group of people who see you as you are and see you for the person that you have become and are the person that you always were, but you've now revealed to the world. And, you know, that's incredibly valuable. I think that Part of the thing about the chosen family that I really love, especially in like a lot of fantasy and science fiction, is that they remind you who you are. Like when you start to kind of lose yourself or when you start to kind of become disconnected from, you know, your your core self or whatever or your authentic self because you're being pulled in all different directions by different things, your chosen family will remind you of like who you really are and who the person that you actually are trying to be or 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 just are but the person that you're you are putting out into the world that's like your real self and that's something that i definitely kind of deal with a lot in in victories greater than death we think of found family as quite a modern idea um maybe because it's so popular at the moment this idea of you know meeting people um on your own terms saying well this is this is who i am and we can kind of start from a blank slate and you never bring all that baggage, um, like your own family, the people who've watched you grow up, have a certain amount of baggage. They bring that with them um, when they see you. So I, I like the idea of 
um, the, the, I think a lot of people find freedom in the idea of the found family. But thinking about it, I was like, this is not a modern thing because it goes it kind of goes back to the oldest stories, doesn't it? Like I was thinking about the Odyssey, you know, how how Odysseus is, is actually such a bastard to his own wife and kid who are like sitting waiting for him at home and yeah. actually the the person who he is and the person who he feels himself to be is best expressed amongst his crew and his fellow adventurers rather than shut away in this quite domestic space. Um, so how modern is the idea of this? I feel like it's actually quite quite um, an old idea and quite quite you know um, connected to the idea of human identity. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, the 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 term chosen family or found family is is recent and, you know, I think that LGBTQ plus people have kind of put our own uh idea on it. We've kind of we've kind of put our own uh spin on it if you want. Uh because we are we have a a different it's a different thing for us, but I think that the idea of like having a group of people that you belong with who see you and who understand you and who you know, you can be yourself with is is a very old idea. And you're right about Odysseus. God, what a jerk. I just feel bad for his wife. <laughs> All yeah, those suitors. Poor Penelope. You know? The other thing that I was thinking about with Odysseus and these older stories is the crew, the ship's crew, the the crew that we now see most often in science fiction and space operas, um, that the Firefly effect, um, the, the Becky Chambers. Like these are... This idea of going adventuring um, with a group of like-minded people—why? Why is that so appealing? Because I keep feel—I feel like we see it everywhere, and everyone loves it. Yeah, I mean, I think that the examples you mentioned, uh, Firefly and the Becky Chambers books, and I would say The Expanse also—I mean, those are, you know, those are kind of scrappy underdogs. Which I always—I I think we all love scrappy underdogs. We all love kind of like people who are not, you know, necessarily like the, 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 the chosen elite, you know, um, commanders of some military force, but instead are kind of just doing the best they can in really difficult situations and, you know, kind of just trying to keep their heads up in, in the middle of like some really tough scrapes. And I think we all love underdogs. We all love people who are kind of bonded through adversity, which I think is definitely true of those characters that you mentioned. I think it's just, this is part of, you know, the kind of our love for like a band of, of misfits who, who get through something somehow, you know? Yeah. And I think it actually, it's also everywhere in fantasy as well. You know, the, the standard quest narrative is always kind of the, a, a strange bunch of people going along together and you they just, you end up having your family, you develop that core knit group. Like, and I, yeah, I think it's very popular throughout everything, but I, what I personally love about the, the sort of sci-fi ones where you get it on a ship, it's that close confined quarters that makes all the difference because, you know, families, they're real families in the sense that, you can't necessarily get away. They're going to get on your nerves. And, you know, like it's, it's, you know, your annoying brother or the emptiness of space. So right. <laughs> you're just going to have to put up with it. It also provides a different 
lens on community as well, which you could say it was something like ba- the Battlestar reboot where you've got that, you know, it's a widened out effect because there's a it's a huge ship with hundreds, thousands of people, but you still have this idea that they're all stuck in the one place together, which I think all of us know far too much about at the moment with pandemics and so on. But that makes for very interesting discussion because it's, you know, how how then do you go about trying to define your identity when you physically can't escape everyone around you? It must be much harder to delineate where, you know, you begin and the others, you know, where is the line and, and what have I decided versus what, you know, have I been forced into because there's just no escape. I mean, you know, we all love stories of people who are forced together by circumstances and who's kind of, you know, these are not, this is not the person I would have chosen to be like tied to or trapped in a ship with or on an epic fantasy quest with, but we have to like get along somehow. And, you know, eventually that antipathy, antipathy turns into like friendship or something more. But, you know, I think that we all, I mean, those kinds of stories are catnip for a reason. When I used to work for romance authors and editors, I always got, I, it was always the case that those stories which have the most conflict really, really do work um, in romance. And I think the idea of fan family and the conflict that comes within that just works forever in every setting, in every genre. It's just one that just almost defies genre because it is just such a wonderful thing to read about. So I think we've kind of, uh, everything we've said about fan family seems to come back to this idea of freedom of choice, that the that, that choice in shaping our identities is the most important factor. But then thinking about something like cloning, like particularly AI, um, when we think about artificial intelligence, it is very often, well, obviously programmed by humans. It is pre-programmed, it is manufactured. Um, in a world where we're seeing more use of kind of AI and, and obviously in an environment where people speculate about where this technology could end up and all the ethical questions that go with it, how does manufactured identity, um, how do you even go about approaching that? How do you say, how can we say that an AI has freedom of choice? And if freedom of choice is something that is integral and important in the creation of a valid identity, can we ever say that artificial intelligence has an identity? I mean, that's such a thorny question. And we really could be here, you know, for the next hour or two discussing that. There's been actually kind of a wave of new kind of stories about the yeah, the, the selfhood and the kind of personhood of AI. Whereas, you know, I think up until maybe 10 years ago, most of our AI stories were about like, oh my gosh, is it going to kill us? Oh my gosh you know, how do we feel about AI? There's been like some really interesting stuff in the last like several years that has kind of taken the point of view of AI and kind of tried to look at things from the AI perspective. And there's that show, uh, I'm going to butcher the Swedish name, but there's a Swedish name called Real Humans, I think that was made in, that was remade in the United States uh, or the United States and the UK. I think it was a co-production. There was that movie Ex Machina. There was Westworld. Ted Chang has done some really interesting things with like the kind of selfhood of AI, particularly his uh, novella, The Life Cycle of Software Objects, which I highly recommend. 
And, you know, my partner, I mean, just shout out my partner, Annalie Newitz, who wrote a book called Autonomous, which has a robot character who is discovering that uh, their programming includes some subroutines that kind of limit and control their behavior. And once they sort of are start able to start getting root on their own consciousness and seeing and maybe even altering those subroutines, they can finally start to have like an independent selfhood versus just being kind of limited and, and constrained by other people's fears and, and control freak tendencies, which I think is, I, I love that book so much. Um, obviously, I'm a little biased, but it's an amazing book. I can support you there. I've read it and it's great. <laughs> I think AI is, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Becky Chambers, uh, I always forget which one. I think it's a closed and common orbit. I think that's right. Which yeah. is basic, yeah, which is all about kind of an AI discovering who they are without the limitations. Um, and it's, I would say that that one is very much an allegory because, you know, it's it's about anyone who's going out into the world and discovering themselves and who they are um, free of any kind of shackles that they've had on them beforehand. And yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. As you say, it's a philosophical question that could keep us here forever, but I do, I really love that. Uh, I love that you can ask those questions and just play around with those ideas. I mean, there's um, a book by Adam Roberts that I really love called Bet. And it's basically where they, they start implanting animals with AI chips that mean that they can talk and they can communicate how they're feeling. And the whole question of it is, well, is it actually them or is it the chip itself? Like, is it really interpreting and, and allowing them to communicate or is it just this AI, this whatever it is that you've put in there and sort of in a pre-programmed sort of way. And that's very interesting as well when you get into conversations about, well, which, you know, how much is the program, how much isn't, or if you start right. to augment bodies and, and all that sort of stuff, um, it becomes very complicated, but but also very interesting. And yeah, it's a good book. Fancy uh, reading it. Yeah, my sister raves about that book all the time. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. High concept. Very high concept. And one of my favorite like openings of all time, which is it just opens with a man about to shoot a cow in the head. And the cow says to the man, are you, you at least going to cheering test me? Ah, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's really great. Um, <laughs> but it is fascinating, you know, this idea of, what is um, the personality or the the identity? Because even, you know, we could talk about our pets generally. You know, I have a cat and I have projected absolutely a personality and identity onto her. And But she has no say in that because she, well, A, can't really communicate that. And she is just, you know, she is kind of only seen through my eyes in that sense, which... Again, it's interesting. I think at one point you were talking about the, the found families, how you know they we decide on them, and 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 cho in choosing them, it helps us become who we are and be comfortable with who we are. Which 
also yeah. actually made me think um made me think of Sartre and uh, oh, the whole wow. idea of you know hell is other people oh right because right, right. Yeah. you know that idea of yeah you only experience yourself through the reflections of other people reflecting back on you so if you just exist in a complete vacuum of you know there's nobody else there do you really know who you are because you can't get kind of the response and mm-hmm. and that sort of thing and and that's interesting as well and i think sorry to come back to found families but it it's it's almost like when you choose the people who are there to reflect back to you that is it's kind of like you're choosing yourself because you want to see things see yourself in a certain way and sometimes maybe we choose the people around us because they see us that way like you you don't want to choose your you know we all have thorny relationships in some way or other with our um parents and you know mm-hmm. maybe i don't want to see myself the way that my parents sees me maybe i want to see myself the way this friend sees me and and so on and and i think that's that's really important for all kinds of conversations around identity because how can we yeah it's it's that processing of how can we really know who we are is it how i'm seeing myself what about how other people are seeing me and 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 all that kind of thing yeah i actually love like my favorite sartre sort of thought experiment is is the person looking through the keyhole, who is sort of looking through a keyhole at something happening inside a, a, a hotel room, say, or like a room. And the person looking through the keyhole doesn't think of themselves as like having a body in that moment. They don't think of themselves as having like an identity that can be seen by others. They are pure viewpoint. They are pure kind of um, observer. And, you know, they're, they're just, they're the subject and everybody else is the object. But that if somebody comes up along behind them in the corridor and is like, what are you doing looking through that keyhole? Suddenly, they have to go from being observer to being observed. And they have to go from, you know, kind of disembodied to having a body and to having, you know, and they're suddenly an object. And they're suddenly like being kind of regarded by another person and having to deal with that other person's perceptions. And I think that that's such an interesting, I, I always think about that, that thought experiment because it's just such an interesting way to think about like how we go through the world, you know, because like oftentimes I sort of feel like a disembodied consciousness for stretches of time and then I'm not. And then I have a body. It's weird. I just want to say this has been such an interesting conversation, especially all this stuff about, you know, choosing to surround ourselves with certain people, um, not because of those people in a way, but because of the way that they, the effect that they have on our own identity. That's just really, really interesting. And I, I love the fact that philosophy sometimes intersects so well with these discussions. Um, For sure. I mean, obviously Meg is our like resident, resident philosopher here. But yeah, it's it's just a perfect intersection because very often speculative fiction like it's it's in the name it's all about you know speculating um and and Mm -hmm. this field this arena is the perfect place um in which to amass and share ideas and try out new ways of thinking um so i think it's just such a i feel i feel like we're living in a really you know particularly now i think we've um you know it's massively improved over the last 10 years i feel people are a bit more bold um, you know, with the ideas that they're discussing kind of in the public domain. So I feel quite lucky that we're kind of living in this time. We get to have these sort of discussions on podcasts like this. 
Yay. It has been amazing. And thank you so much for coming on. Um, it was really my pleasure. Big fan. And I forgot to also, I, I know that this just means nothing, but I always like it when I get to, you know, recommend books and I have recommended your books to quite a few people who are always just Aww. like, oh my goodness. Like, you know, at one point they're just like, what am I even reading? And I'm like, just keep going. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you so um, much. And, and, you know, really loving it so and including my mom so <laughs> oh, that's 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 the highest praise you know if it's if it's mom approved that's awesome yeah <laughs> so yeah thank you so much um for joining us it was my pleasure thank you so much for having me breaking the glass slipper is written and produced by megan lee charlotte bond and lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.